Hello and welcome to Accountant Instruction Help and How To. In this lecture, we're going to talk about the auditing process over the revenue process and specifically the revenue account. So we're finally to the point where we're actually going to look at those balance sheet accounts, those income statement accounts, and drill down on those and audit those accounts specifically, starting with the revenue account because the revenue account is such a very important account for one and because it overlaps a lot in all, a lot of different other accounts. When we audit revenue account, we'll do some testing that will affect some of the other accounts which could help us with the audit process through the other accounts when we go through them as well. At the end of this, we will be able to explain the revenue process, list accounts affected in the revenue process, list documentation related to the revenue process, explain controls related to the segregation of duties with regards to revenue, and discuss key internal controls related to revenue, and then we'll get into other substantive types of testing related to the revenue process. So when we think about revenue, we need to think about the idea of revenue recognition. We're talking about the accrual basis. We're talking about generally accepted accounting principles, the accrual basis. Revenue is recognized when it is earned, not when the cash is received. So that's going to be the key point. So the key point is going to be when was the revenue earned? Because when we think about how a company might commit some type of fraud or have some error that uh, distorts the revenue, we're usually thinking about timing, meaning they're pulling in revenue from last year into this time period or something like that. So the timing of when revenue should be reported is very important. So revenue does not mean cash. It means that we did the work to earn the revenue. So what work earns the revenue? Well, if we're a service company, when the work is substantially completed, then we have earned the revenue. If we're a company that sells goods and we have selling inventory, then usually at the point of that timing when the, when the inventory leaves, that's when we've completed our job that's when we have generally earned the revenue. So the point in time is going to include some type of asset that we're going to receive. The asset's usually going to be, or a liability, but if we get an asset, it's usually going to be accounts receivable or cash that we're going to get. We might not get the cash up front, but we still get that asset of the receivable, assuming that asset of the receivable at the time that we have then earned it. Or there could be some kind of forgiveness of the liability. That's still revenue if the liability is forgiven for us doing what we do, meaning delivering the goods or the services in our normal business process. So that's gonna be the idea of the revenue recognition. Four key points to when we're trying to determine when that revenue has been recognized. Uh, there should be persuasive evidence of an arrangement that exists. So when we're talking about is revenue, has revenue been earned? Well, there needs to be evidence of an arrangement. Now that doesn't mean documentation. When we hear that, we usually think, well, that means there must be a documentation. Not, not necessarily a documentation. I mean, if someone paid someone else money, then that doesn't normally happen unless there's some kind of arrangement. So, so the payment of money or the delivery of goods and services usually indicates that there's going to be some type of, of arrangement that happened. And in the normal course of business, if we just made a sale on account, then it, it may be the case that that arrangement is an arrangement that we assume to happen based on that delivery. And it could have documentation, the purchase order, and this type of stuff as well. But the fact that uh, items have changed hands is evidence as well. Delivery has occurred or services have been rendered. So that's usually the point that we're going to be looking at. When we do our audit test and we're usually looking at that point, we're saying, well, when should, when should we revenue be recognized? Well, when the work was done, when the work was basically completed or substantially completed and or when the stuff was delivered because that's the work that was substantially completed when we deliver stuff for our business. Okay, the third place would be um, the seller's price to the buyer is fixed or determined. So once that price has been agreed on, that's going to be part of the process. That's going to be part of the indication that 
an arrangement exists, and the collectability is reasonably assured. So remember that we may be making uh, sales that are not for cash at that point in time, but if we made the sale, then we're assuming that there's reasonable collectability for that uh, cash for it and in a reasonable amount of time. We're expecting to get that cash usually within 30, and six, 30 or 60 days. We expect it to be reasonably collectible. So when we go through this, we want to consider the idea of when fraud could happen. So we're thinking revenue, we're going to think when could fraud happen, and that's going to help us to kind of think through the anal analyzing of the account. And if we were going to go through fraud, if a company was to commit fraud, they're usually trying to look better, probably. So they're probably trying to increase the revenue. And if they were trying to look better, revenue would be a key place where they may be looking to do that, of course. So how might a company, if they were attempting to commit fraud, commit fraud with relation to the revenue account? Most of it has to do with that timing, that timing issue, early revenue recognition meaning we have sales next year that we some that the company somehow pulls in to this year. The, the company is trying to pull the revenue in that is really related to next year into the current year. So we, that could happen by them holding the books open, not closing the books basically at the end of the year, and trying to pull in uh, the revenue. There's a couple you know, different types of ways that we can they can basically try to pull the revenue in. Uh, we could have They could just have fictitious sales, meaning the sales are just not really sales so what would that look like well there'd be a journal entry or something and that journal entry would be would look something like this it would be a debit to accounts receivable a credit to sales and if they sell inventory then it would be a debit to cost of goods sold along with it and a, and a credit to the inventory now if the auditor was to test that particular sale they and they sold inventory that's what they would be looking for well the did the inventory actually change hands and if it's a complete fictitious sale, it's likely that there was no inventory involved, and that would be an indication that it was a fictitious sale. But there could be other arrangements where they, you know, sold the inventory, but they arranged that there's going to be a return or something like that. Or there could be a related party transaction. And we know that if, obviously if there's a related party, if there's like a subsidiary of the, or, of the company and there's a sale, whenever there's a related party, if we're, if we're selling stuff to a third party, then we assume it's going to be at market value, of course, because... If we're selling to a third party, that's what market value is. Two people making an agreement, it goes to the third party, it's going to be at market value. But if we make a sale to a related party, then there could be reasons that we would have sales prices that are really high for the sale. It could be an unusually termed sale, and that's when special agreements could be put in place as well. So there also could be failure to re record the returns. So if, if significant amounts of inventory were returned, and the company is trying to look better, they may not just be recognizing those returns, which would uh, decrease or have the sales allowance account, which would decrease the net income related to the revenue. What we might be cautious of, we might be looking for a side, a side agreement within the audit. So if, so if an audit has some adjusted terms within the terms of an agreement for a sale that are outside the norm or the sale was made and then, and then the terms were adjusted, that's going to be an indication that we might want to dig in there and see if there's any kind of unusual circumstance with the timing of the inventory. Channel stuffing is the idea that we have a distributor that we're selling more or pressuring to sell more to more than they could turn around and sell at that point in time. And that could be due to different types of pressure. We, we may be just giving a, a substantial discount. You can imagine at the end of the year, the com our, this company is trying to get the revenue up, so they might be saying, Hey, if you buy a substantial amount of inventory, we'll give you a discount or make some special terms on it, even though they wouldn't normally buy that. 
And the question then is going to be, well, is that really a sale that happened here? Because we know in, in actuality what really happened is the sale happened here that would have happened next year. And therefore, next year's sales are going to be less. And what we're really, what's really happened is pulling uh, the revenue into the current period that should would belong to the next period. Then we got those related party transactions. That's when a lot of different types of related party transactions could be. We could have those fictitious sales often taking place in the related parties. A sale that uh, is fictitious in that it's just not even there or a sale where the, the asset was sold and it's, and it's expected to, to uh, be returned at some point or something like that. Uh, there's also an agreement, if there's an agreement of bill and hold type of agreement, that would be a type of agreement where one company, uh, they decide to buy the inventory, but they have an agreement that uh, although they're purchasing it, they want the seller of the inventory just to hold on to it until some point in the future when the buyer requests it. Again, that looks a lot like, well, the inventory never left because we as the tester would say, how did the sale take place? How do we know it takes place? We usually look at the shipping document and we looked at the shipping document and this inventory is still sitting here <laughs> and it's the, and it's because there's a special agreement. So that special agreement looks kind of unusual. I mean, there, you could think of reasons why that might be the case, why that might actually have happened, but uh, it, it's one of those things that uh, looks unusual if we were to audit something like that as well. So the revenue recognition process, we want to think through the revenue recognition process as we go. So when we think in the revenue recognition, obviously we're going to purchase inventory. If we're talking about someone who sells inventory, we're going to purchase the inventory. And that's going to be a debit to inventory and a credit to cash or, or a credit to accounts payable. And then we're going to sell that inventory. And when we sell the inventory, we're going to, if we sell it for cash, we're going to debit cash. We're going to credit sales. Then we're going to debit cost of goods sold, the expense related to the inventory, and credit the inventory. That would be for a cash sale. Now, if we sold stuff on credit, then we've got a different dynamic in there. We've got one more piece in the chart here, in the flow chart that we're looking at. Obviously, we'd still purchase the inventory. But then when we sell the inventory, you can imagine us basically invoicing the client. We invoice the client. We didn't get the money yet. And that, that separates the point in time in which the revenue is earned and when we get the money. So when we make the sale, we're going to say the invoice went out possibly at that point in time. We're going to debit accounts receivable. We're going to credit sales. We're going to debit cost of goods sold. We're going to credit inventory when the inventory is, is shipped, basically. And then at some point in the future, we're going to get the check. Maybe we get the check in the mail. And if we get the check in the mail, then we're going to debit cash and we're going to credit accounts receivable. So we've got that one extra step now, it going into accounts receivable, it going out when we get the money, out of accounts receivable when we get the money. When is the sales recognized? When we made the sale, when we, when we delivered the inventory, when the inventory was purchased, that's when the sale happened, not when the cash happened. There's basically three types of transactions that will happen through the revenue accounts, and that's when we're going to test these three types of transactions and the accounts related to them. So when we're testing the sales process, we have this, the sales transactions that are going to happen. And of course, that's going to be that one. We're going to debit account receivable. We're going to credit sales. So those are going to be in there for sure. And then we also have the allowance for doubtful accounts that will be there related to the accounts receivable. Allowance for doubtful accounts is going to be our estimation of how much of those AR is not going to be collectible. So we think that uh, if we made so many sales, we're going to say we know that some of those aren't going to be collectible. We're going to guess how many or calculate how many in some way make an est a good estimate of how many will not be collected and then we're going to say those are uncollectible receivables based on past experience and our future calculations and then we have the bad debt expense which is the relation to 
the allowance. That those are the types of sales that we're making at this time period that are not going to be collectible. So if we make sales on account, then we're going to determine how much of those sales are not going to be a collectible and write it off for bad debt expense. So you can think of bad debt expense as kind of like um, related to sales. You would think, well, if it's not collectible, why don't you just reverse the sale? The sale never really happened if they're not going to get paid for it. But but we never really reduce sales. We make another account called bad debt expense. It's an expense, but it's kind of like a reduction of revenue because the revenue never really happened. Kind of. So then we got the cash receipts transaction. So we're going to test cash when it comes in as part of the revenue process. So note that when we when we actually go test cash in and of itself outside of the revenue process, we've already done a little bit of the work here. Where there's some overlap in, in cash when we take a look at the revenue. And then, of course, the accounts receivable related to the cash receipt. And if there's any cash discounts, if we're given a cash discount, for example, if we sold inventory and then we said, if you um, give us the cash earlier than 30 days, say in 10 days, then we will give you a discount. Well, we're going to have to audit that discount period. And then we have the sales returns and allowances. Accounts are going to be related to the sales transactions. And that would be when we get a return of the item. Of course, if we get a return of the item, then we're going to, we're going to debit the inventory. We're going to credit the cost of goods sold related to the inventory. And that's another one would you would think that we would just reduce, we would reverse sales. You would think we'd say, well, that's like the sale never happened, so we need to reverse sales. But we don't do that. What we make is a, is a sales returns or an allowances, uh, a sales returns or allowances type of account. And that's going to be a, a counter revenue account. And then we might have a sales allowance account, which again, it's going to estimate how much of those returns are going to happen within the future. When we document the sales process, we would often use a flowchart, and the company often will have a flowchart which will design a pictorial format in which we can see the flow of the activities from the point of sale through the processing, through the shipping of the activities in a pictorial form. So that's going to be a very good in way to visualize the process, visualize uh, the, the checks, the separation of duties within the process, and that could be something that we would want to include in our working paper. Let's consider just the type of documentation that would be within this sales process. So these are the type of documents that we're going to dig through in some way or another as our testing goes on. And some of this documentation will be the documentation that actually records the transaction. You can see the system will record the transaction and or reports related to the transactions in the sales process. So we got the customer sales order. So of course that we're going to have a sales order of some kind as part of the documentation. We've got the a credit approval form, if there's an a credit approval, meaning if the, a sales process requires us to get some kind of credit approval from the customer in the sales process, then we'll have that documentation as well. We may have an open order report, and that's going to be a report internally gener generated recording the orders that have not been fulfilled, the orders that are still open. That's going to be a process that we're going to have to have some process of reviewing the open order reports. If we're talking about selling inventory, we got to see which of the, of the inventory reports have not been refilled and therefore are still open. We then have the shipping documents. The shipping documents are kind of like the bill of lading and they contain information on the type of the product shipped, the quantity shipped, and the other related information related to the shipping of the of the product, of the inventory in this case. We have the sales invoice. The sales invoice is what we're going to use as the bill. So that's to the customer, that's going to be the bill. To us, that's going to be the sales invoice. The sales invoice usually triggers that sales journal. The sales journal or some type of transaction, that's going to be the recording 
of the transaction, the record, into the accounting system with the sales journal. If we make the sale on account, you can think of the recording of the transaction. When we record this, if we were to record it just in a transaction format, it would be a debit to accounts receivable, a credit to sales, a debit to cost of goods sold, a credit to the inventory account. If it goes into the accounts receivable, we're also going to have some recording to the accounts receivable subsidiary ledger. Why? Because the subsidiary ledger is going to order things not by the general ledger by date, but it's going to order things by customer, who owes the money. So when we have the accounts receivable, whenever we record the, the sale, which often happens at the point of invoicing, the, or the and which should be at the same time as the shipping, because that's when the revenue should be recorded, then we're also going to record the subsidiary ledger that shows the activity of who owes money by customer rather than by date. We'll also generate the age trial balance of accounts receivable. And that's going to be another thing that's going to be generated. It's kind of like the subsidiary. It's basically the same thing as the subsidiary ledger. But that's going to give us the accounts receivable by how old the receivables are. And that's going to help us to measure whether we think we're going to get payment on those receivables. So we, now we have the receivables by customer rather than by date. And we've got the receivables by how old or how outstanding there are. We also have documentation related to the remittance adv advice. That's going to be the documentation that usually we get with the bill, that we're going to return with the bill. Therefore, when we invoice the client, we're also going to include the remittance advice for them to return to us. We will also need some kind of cash receipts journal, some kind of journaling of the receiving of the money. So if we're billing the clients and then we're receiving the money, we're going to have some kind of cash receipts journal to record that process. We could have the credit memorandum. This document is used to record credits for returns of the, of the goods. If we think about the normal sales process, it's usually going to start with some type of initiation, which will be the initial function of the revenue process. It's the new sales order that will happen. The new sale will happen. Then we may have a credit authorization process. So we may authorize the credit and record that before we then process the shipping. At that point, if we have inventory, then we might have the shipping piece of the process. Once it has been shipped, that's when the invoice can happen or the billing will happen at that point. And that means that the billing and the shipping should happen close in time because that's really when the point of revenue is recognized. And when we do our audit testing later, we're often going to check that. We're going to say, is the revenue recognized in the same time that basically the shipping happened? Because that's usually when the revenue should be recognized. Then we should have the cash collection at some point in the future. That includes, of course, checks. And that cash collection should all be deposited into the bank. We should never have the cash collection not going to the bank. We want to put it into the bank in a timely fashion as we are getting the receipts. And then we've got the accounts receivable being reduced at that point in time when we receive the cash for the payment. And we've got to record all this through the general ledger as well, recording the general ledger accounts related to these processes. If we consider the separation of duties for the internal controls with relation to the sales process, we could think of different departments that will separate the duties. And of course, again, if it's a larger company, we have a lot more ability to have the separation of duties. If we have a small company, then we have less ability to separate duties. So the amount of separation of duties will be in a comparison to the, just the size of the accounting department. So if we have the receiving and preparing of the customer order, that would be from the order department or the sales department. Then we may have an, a credit approval. If we have an, a credit approval process, we want that to be in a separate place. Hopefully we have a credit department that can do that. We might have someone outside that's basically doing the credit checking. We have the shipping of the goods to the customers and completing the shipping document. 
That's going to be, of course, the shipping department, which will be the shipping of goods, and that's going to be a separate department. Preparing customer invoice, that's going to be the accounts receivable. So the accounts receivables are going to be doing that receive the inventory, I mean the invoicing, and they may have to be helped by the IT departments in order to process that process. Updating accounts receivable records for the sales, that's going to be the accounts receivable department. Receiving the, the payments, so receiving the cash, notice we're going to have a difference there. We're going to have the, the cash receipts being handled by the cash receipts differently, and the remittance letter then is given to the receivable department to record the process. So notice what we're trying to separate there is the receipts of the, the handling of the cash and the recording. So when we get the cash back, it's going to go to the cash receipts area. And then the remittance is going to be entered by the uh, accounts receivable department. And when we're considering the accounts receivable write-offs, when we're considering which, when we should write off an accounts receivable, that should be handled by someone outside as well. Possibly the treasurer should be involved with the handling of how much should we write off or when should we write off the receivable. Like with all accounts, we're going to do a similar process. We're going to test the controls. We want to get an understanding of the controls. And then with that understanding of controls, then we can test if we want to do more testing of controls and rely on them or not, or should we then go to the substantive testing. So we want to get a first an understanding of the process. We want to get an understanding of the controls related to the revenue recognitions. And then we want to document that information and use it in order to uh, put a plan together for testing the revenue process. When we document the internal controls, there could be different formats that we could use to document that internal controls within our work papers. We could have procedures and manuals. We could have the flowcharts. We might just have a narrative documentation in terms of how a process works. Uh, we might we'll be using questionnaires most likely for many parts of the documentation and uh, and pictorial formats. So depending on what type of control we're taking a look at, we will document that in different ways within the working papers. Part of the control process will be to understand the processes that are in place, as well as the review process. That means how the supervisors are monitoring whether the internal controls are actually being uh, done. How are they reviewing? How are they testing for the internal controls being done within the company? So remember the types of assertions that we are going to be testing with relation to revenue will include that in terms of occurrence, the fact that the transactions related to revenue has occurred. We're testing for completeness, that all the transactions are complete with relation to revenue. Authorization, did the, was there authorization for all the transactions in the process? Accuracy, we're looking for accuracy within the transaction. The cutoff, that's going to be a very important one for the revenue recognition. Were all the transactions recorded in the proper time period? And classification, are they classified correctly within the correct account? When we think about occurrence specifically with relation to revenue, we're really concerned with whether uh, the sale has actually happened. We're, we're worried about those fictitious sales that would be recorded in order to just increase revenue when the sale didn't really happen. We're also concerned uh, with if the shipment didn't ha happen. If a sale is recorded and there was no shipment, then there's a concern as to whether occurrence of a sale really happened. With regards to completion, we, all, we have the problem of cash or checks being stolen before they get to the bank account. That's one of the problems that could be a concern with completion, meaning the sale happened, but we didn't get the revenue for it. And the separation of duties is one item that should guard against this type of problem, meaning we have a separation of the recording of the information and the handling of the cash, and therefore there would have to be collusion in order for uh, the, the fraud to take place in that case. Of course, if we have that issue, if we have that separation of duties where someone is recording the process and another person is having the cash, 
there could be a difference in terms of, an, of a misstatement in terms of the recording and the cache not being accurate. And in order to catch that, we usually have some reconciliation process, similar to a bank reconciliation, but we can, we can reconcile basically daily and the, the cache that was deposited and the records that were recorded and make sure that the two are reconciling out. If they don't, then we'll dig into that further. When we consider the sales memorandums, if we have the returns and sales allowances, notice the returns are often not a significant part. They may not be material but the sales memorandums are often a way that a shipment of goods could happen. So we want to check and review the sales memorandums to see if things were shipped that should not have been shipped. We then determine the substantive testing. So the substantive testing is going to include analytical procedures. Remember those are the types of things that can kind of be done in the office. Those are going to be the ratio analysis that can tell us a lot about differences or unusual activities within the ratios. The ratio analysis that could be used for the analytical testing in terms of the receivable in terms of the receivables or the sales items would be the receivable turnover. Uh, so the days outstanding, so we can have the ratio for the receivable turnover, the aging categories on the trial balance for the accounts receivable. We can have the bad debt expense as a percentage of revenue and compare that to industry averages or compare it to prior periods. Allowance for uncollectible accounts as a percent of accounts receivable or credit sales. Again, that ratio can be compared to prior periods or um, other industry averages. Large customer account balances compared to last period. So if we, that's going to give an indication if we have a significant amount of sale to a small group of people, that's going to be an issue or an indication that we want to dig into something further. Notice that the ratios are going to be very important because we can compare those not just to the particular company, but to industry averages. So we cannot compare dollar amounts to com industry averages. If we're, if we're comparing one uh, hamburger place or a restaurant place, which is much smaller to another restaurant place, then, of course, we can't compare the dollar amounts. We can't say, well, there's a difference in dollar amount here. What's the difference in dollar amount there? It's not going to work because one company is way larger. We can compare the ratios. So that's going to be this ratio analysis, which will really give a good indication of unusual trends. Audit testing will include tests at the transaction level, and it'll include tests at the balance level. So remember our assertions when we're thinking about the transactions as we go through the tests, where assertions are going to be the occurrence, completeness, authorization, accuracy, cutoff, classification. Those are going to be the assertions we're looking at. If we're looking at the balance level, we're looking at existence, rights and obligations, completeness, valuation. Those are going to be the assertions we are looking into as we go through these. When we consider completeness, we want to make sure that all the transactions related to accounts receivable have been recorded and a reconciliation of the age trial balance to the general ledger account should detect any omissions in that area. Cutoff testing is going to be very important. So remember the cutoff testing, what we're trying to see is the revenue reported in the proper area. We need to know when it should be reported. If we're talking about something that is shipped, then we're going to say the shipping document is generally when it should be reported. So we'll do the cutoff testing for the substantive test. We'll actually go and pull the shipping documents. If we're talking about a year in December 31st and like around December, we'll go in and look at the shipping documents and track those to the invoice and track that to when the item was recorded in the books. We'll also take a look at January's of the next year and look at those shipping documents. So anything that went out in December, we're going to track to the ship to the recording of the revenue and see that it was recorded in December in a sample. And then we're going to do the same thing for Jan for everything that went out in January. If the shipment went out in January, we're going to trace it back and see that everything was recorded in January in the next year. And that's one way we're going to test the cutoff testing.
The assertion of existence is going to be especially important with accounts receivable because we want to make sure that everything that's recorded as accounts receivable is actually something that exists. So that's where we're going to use our confirmations. We're going to get the subsidiary ledgers breaking out the receivable by who owes them money. And then we're going to have confirmations that we will send out to customers is one of the main tests that can they could test for the completeness that the accounts receivable reported actually do exist. Accounts receivable does need to be reported at the net realizable value. So that means that whatever the accounts receivable are, they're going to be the accounts receivable on the books. We should have an allowance account. Now, if, if the allowance account, if it's not significant, if it's immaterial, then it's possible not to have the allowance account. But for most companies, if they've got a large accounts receivable, then it's very likely that many of those receivables will be uncollectible just based on past experience. So we're going to have to recalculate that allowance account and make sure that the allowance account related to the receivable account is valued fairly, meaning this is how much that, that is owed to the company in the receivable. This is how much of the allowance that we're going to reduce that receivable by or show the fact that we expect this amount not to be collectible based on past experience. One of the major areas with the assertion of classification is the segregation of any short-term and long-term receivables. So if, remember, if anything is over a year, it shouldn't be a current receivable. It should be a long-term receivable. So if we have any types of agreements where we have a long-term collection process, then it shouldn't be in the short-term area within the balance sheet. It should be a long-term receivable. Usually in the audit process, we're going to have a confirmation, which will be a written documentation. So we're actually going to get that list of the accounts receivables, who owes the company money and we're going to send out the confirmation now when we send out the confirmation to the customers they're not required to respond to it but we're asking them on behalf of the company to help us out with the audit process we're going to send those confirmations not from the company we're going to send them from the auditor's office and that's another reason why they may not always know who's giving them the letter because we need to send it from us so it doesn't go through the company because that's going to be a stronger confirmation we want to send it out from our office we want it to be received by our office and therefore we won't be going through the company where we could have a problem with uh, any type of tampering with the confirmation. It is possible for us not to have a confirmation process within the receivables if, for example, the receivables were immaterial. If we're saying the receivables are, are immaterial, if we can test the receivables in some other way without the confirmations, it's possible not to have them. But for most companies that have a large amount of receivables that are material, then we probably want some type of confirmation process where we sample the receivable confirmations and the customers and send out some confirmations to them. The wording of the confirmation will have a big difference in terms of how strong the evidence of the confirmation are. For example, we could word the confirmation in such a way that we were going to send a letter to the customer about the client. We're going to say, as of this point in time, according to the client's records, you owe this much money to the client and ask them to return the letter and either confirm or deny that. Hopefully confirm that to be correct, and that would be good for us to have that sample to, to cross that off. We could have a negative confirmation in which we basically send out all the confirmations, and we say, please only respond to this. It's going to say the same word, and it's going to say, as of this point in time, the records of this company show that you owe this much money, and please give a response only if you do not agree that this is correct. So obviously the first confirmation is going to be a lot higher of assurance to us because we're going to get positive assurance that it's correct. If we do a negative confirmation, we're going to get only negative assurance. If we don't get it back, then we're assuming it's correct. So the, the first, and it's going to be whether or not the audit risk, how much audit risk is involved in when we decide if we want a positive confirmation or a negative confirmation. Obviously, if we send a positive confirmation, 
uh, it's more like it's quite possible we don't get them all back because again the the customers aren't required to give their confirmations back. If we have a negative confirmation, we're assuming we're only going to get it back if we have a problem. We can also word it in such a way that we actually have the balance on the confirmation. We can say that this company, their records show that as of this date and time, you owe this much money, and is that correct or not? Or we cannot give the amount. We could even say, as of this point in time, this company says that you owe them money. Is that correct? Would you indicate what the amount is? And that would even be more of evidence, more solid evidence, because they would have to then put the amount in, and then when we get the confirmation, we can tie that out, and that would be a higher confirmation as well. So it just depends on what our audit risk is in the determination of what type of confirmation we're going to use. What happens when we don't get some of these confirmations back? We could do some alternative testing. If, we, if the evidence is not strong enough from the confirmations that we have received, we could do some other types of testing. For example, notice that when we do the audit, we're doing it as of 1231 year end. We're going to do the audit at some point after that point in time. So we could actually go to some of these receivables and say, okay, we didn't get a confirmation here. Did they pay it yet? <laughs> because it was due as 1231. Maybe they paid it before, you know, at the time we're doing the audit. So we could go in and say, are some, have some of these been paid? We could look at the uh, past history of the client that we're dealing with and see if they have a, a track record of paying. We could go look at the shipping docu documentation and uh, we could look at other types of documentation related to the client to see how strong the balance would be. Now once all this has been done, once we've done all this testing, we're going to gather that evidence and we're going to put this evidence together and we're going to then see whether or not we're going to accept the account as fairly presented, the accounts receivable as being fairly presented, or if we're going to say that the accounts receivable is not fairly presented for some reason that we found within the evidence of the audit process.